welcome to Healing 101, the mini bite-sized episodes that are bursting full of information from leading experts and doctors who are here to help us understand difficult topics and teach us about the various ways we might be able to improve our mental health. The point of these episodes is to educate you about different mental health disorders and therapies that you may never have heard of before, because ultimately, the more people know, the more people we can help on their healing journeys. On today's Healing 101, I am speaking to Dr. Fianula Barton, who is a GP, women's health doctor and registered member of the British Menopause Society. She is passionate about optimizing physical and emotional wellness for women at all stages of their lives and has a particular interest in early recognition and management of perimenopausal and menopausal symptoms. Menopause itself is a topic which is slowly becoming more publicly discussed, but I still fear that many of us don't know enough about the impact it might have on the quality of our lives. I'm intrigued to learn more about how we can manage these symptoms and how we can have a proactive approach to prevent long-lasting harm, both mentally and physically. I'd love for you to talk to us about what the links are between different mental health problems and the menopause to start off with. Yeah, so I think possibly a good place to start is the fact that menopause essentially is defined as the point in a woman's life where she stops having periods and it's normally at least 12 months since a woman has had her last period. And this marks the end of her reproductive life and essentially um, is the result of a progressive decline in ovarian function over a period of time that we call perimenopause that then leads to the point of menopause. And it's this decline in, in ovarian function, which means we get less and less of these important hormones, estrogen, testosterone and progesterone, that we have relied upon throughout our reproductive years to help to support good mental health. And so when we see these levels declining in perimenopause or persistently low post-menopause, we can see a whole range of mental health symptoms develop as a result of these hormones being unusually low. And I think it's important to sort of start with that because actually it's important to bear in mind that there are phases of our menstrual cycles during our reproductive years where we have a very similar pattern of low estrogen for example towards the end of the period uh, which is often why some people will experience quite profound PMS or even PMDD symptomology so profound low mood anxiousness panic type symptoms even in their premenopausal years but during perimenopause and menopause I see very commonly in clinic this sort of insidious and gradual progressive onset of a whole range of mental health difficulties from overt and outright depression and persistently low mood. The nature of this is that it happens at a time in women's lives when often there's lots of complicated things going on, lots of extrinsic factors that might be feeding into how a woman is feeling. And it's important to consider what other factors might be going on. But I also see a lot of women who have no extrinsic reason for feeling low in mood but just find it really hard to feel happiness and to feel joy and to take pleasure out of things in the same way that they used to and at its most extreme uh, end I've seen women who have had suicidal thoughts um, and have considered taking their own lives or you know fleeing from their, their their lives other really common symptomology is anxiousness and again either worsening anxiousness in somebody who has a coexistent or predisposition to anxiety 
or a previous generalized anxiety disorder or panic disorder, but also new onset anxiety that's sort of come out of nowhere and feels disproportionate to the circumstances that a person is experiencing. Often this is accompanied by panic disorder symptoms, people waking in the night with a panic attack or people experiencing panic attacks in situations where historically they felt fine. Social situations can start to become a little bit trickier. People lose confidence, lose self-esteem, can develop almost an imposter type syndrome and can feel quite uncomfortable in social circumstances and a bit agoraphobic. They can then find themselves being more isolated, which in turn can have you know, issues related to it. As I said, waking in the night, having you know frantic panic attacks with palpitations. And then as soon as your sleep is disturbed, it has then a real negative impact on how you can you know, cope emotionally and cognitively um, during the day as well as, as physically. One of the things that, again, crops up quite commonly and can be quite non-specific is just this sort of loss of confidence. And people often say, like, I just don't feel like myself again. I've lost my spark. If that's something that people can identify with and there isn't any obvious sort of extrinsic cause for it, then it's definitely worth thinking about you know, whether the cause could be in part hormonal or, or due to perimenopause or menopause. I think it's really interesting how previously before the menopause was spoken about more widely, everyone attributed this anxiety or depression to the fact that women couldn't have children. And they sort of looked upon women who are going through the menopause as being like, oh, well, she's just devastated because she's come to an end of being able to childbear and therefore she's facing a slight midlife crisis. Whereas now, as we discover more and more, it's actually to do with the deficit in, in hormones and, and that imbalance. Yeah. And, and hopefully the more we discover there, then the more we can rectify that through alternative methods. And if people choose to go down the HRT route, which we'll discuss in a bit, that can really, really help with those symptoms. Absolutely. I think it's, it's also important to to pay attention to the less direct impacts of these. So there is obviously the direct impacts. You know, we've got lots of estrogen and testosterone and progesterone receptors in really important parts of the brain that regulate emotion, regulate anxiousness, regulate perception of fear. And that's why biologically we are more predisposed to experiencing these problems at these times of, of low hormone levels. But for a lot of women, there is a grief and there is a bereavement that perhaps is actually pretty unexpected as they are facing what is essentially the end of their reproductive lives. And especially if that is something that's existing in the context of marital disharmony or children that they have already leaving home, for example, it's a, a nasty sting in mother nature's tail that this tends to happen at a time in life when either our adolescent children are going through their own mental health and uh, hormonal developmental changes, or indeed leaving to university or to live their own lives. And so there can be lots of really big feelings um, that until we are forced to kind of pause in many ways, we might be dealing with or bottling up or burying deep somewhere. And actually then when this sort of biological manifestation starts to hit, actually a lot of those other difficulties that we're facing can need to be dealt with alongside the biological thing. So, you know, I always suggest to my patients that HRT is a really good part of the toolkit, but also talking therapy can be a massively important part of the toolkit and a very much overlooked one, actually. I'm also fascinated that as we discover and talk more about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, that more women are also being diagnosed in the perimenopausal phase with, with ADHD. And I think some of that's been attributed to the, the hormonal imbalances that are going on 
what are your thoughts around that? I completely agree. And I think what we're lacking is robust research data looking into this particular group of women, which is enormously frustrating. But from an anecdotal perspective, it's something I'm seeing increasingly frequently in clinic. And actually, you know, when I talk about the biological and then sort of less biological reasons why people experience mental health problems at this phase, one of the things that I've noticed quite often is that women who've had an undiagnosed ADHD will get better to a point and they might get all of their physical symptoms under control with HRT. But actually, if they continue to experience some of the mental health symptoms and particularly anxiety type symptoms, that is something that will often then point to, well, what are we missing here? What have we missed or what have we not diagnosed? And on closer questioning, you can then talk to women about what their previous lived experience was, how they were when they were children and adolescents, whether actually how they felt varied across their menstrual cycle, maybe it was worse towards the tail end of the menstrual cycle. And these are all really useful clues as to whether actually there may have been a different neurobiological reason why this person might have uh, have struggled more during perimenopause. And I would say in my clinical experience, women with undiagnosed ADHD hitting perimenopause tend to have a much, much harder time. It can be difficult when you have built up so many robust coping strategies to deal with your ADHD symptoms that then your biology starts to fail you or your biology starts to be less supportive and those coping strategies can become less reliable and that is really discombobulating to people and I think as as much as we can raise awareness to women who have an ADHD diagnosis about how it might mean that their perimenopause might be a bit trickier I think that's really important conversation to be having because if we can stabilize the kind of biological elements it will often mean that they can cope better with the transition from a cognitive and psychological and a behavioral perspective so yeah it is a trend i see i've sent lots of my patients then off to see adhd specialists and they've gone on to receive an adhd diagnosis Um, and whether they then have psychotherapeutic intervention to manage their adhd or psychotherapeutic intervention plus pharmacological intervention with with medications it's obviously dependent on the situation but quite a lot of them will put all three of those things in their toolkit alongside their hrt and as you say, the pharmacological intervention is fascinating because I am really interested in what happens in the future about actually prescribing hormones for people who are suffering with anxiety and disorders which have affected their physical health. And I think often people who have addictions, people who have eating disorders, you're lacking in a lot of nutrients, whether that's because of an imbalanced diet, a deficit of calories, whatever it is. And actually, hormones do have an incredible power to change, as you say, the functioning of the brain, which I think a lot of people don't understand. You know, I think endocrinology as, as a speciality, you know, the study of hormones is an absolutely fascinating one. And our body's ability to sort of regulate and find what we call homeostasis or balance under normal circumstances is so complex. So whenever there is even just one thing that interrupts that kind of normal balance, it can knock out so many other elements of um, of your hormone health, not just your sex hormones, your estrogen and testosterone and progesterone, but you know your thyroid hormones and your hunger and satiety hormones and your stress hormones. And they're all, by definition, interacting with each other and helping to support each other's system. So it kind of stands to reason that as soon as you have a problem in one, it can have a knock-on effect across the board, which is why it's so important to try and keep supporting our hormonal health and well-being as as best possible and it isn't rocket science you know I think that we can do a lot for our hormone health through lifestyle actually and through 
making sure we're nourishing our bodies adequately, making sure we're resting our bodies adequately, making sure that we're supporting our mental health and our cognitive health as well as possible, um, and making sure that we're you know moving on a regular basis in order to help produce all those really important endorphins that will also have a positive effect on things like hormone health. But it's hard to do, um, and it's hard to do you know, in our younger years when we're perhaps under pressure to lead more hedonistic lifestyles or, you know, when we're under pressure to appear a certain way. On the subject of eating disorders, I see a lot of women who are coming through clinic who have disordered eating habits that they've learned in their earlier lives and that are now causing them more problems because you're not fueling your body adequately and you're seeing yourself gain weight actually it can cause a huge number of like really complex feelings and emotions. But unless you're fueling properly, you're not then giving your body the substrate it needs to make all these important hormones that it needs to keep everything ticking along nicely. So yeah, it is, it's complicated and fascinating and in many ways demonstrates that it's very difficult to kind of apply blanket approaches to you know an enormous population of fantastically complex human beings that we are as women. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'd love to go back to what basically are the most common symptoms of the menopause because you hear about jokes being made about having hot flushes, having mood swings, but what are the other physical and mental symptoms that can be linked to the menopause like we've alluded to such as lack of sleep, restlessness, anxiety? So uh, the nature of the problem being a kind of essentially a, a sort of insufficient or deficient hormonal state of hormones that our body has been used to utilizing for normal cellular function across the entire body. All of our cells have got estrogen and testosterone receptors on them, essentially. So as, as your le levels of those things decline, you are potentially going to experience symptoms of those changes anywhere in the body. And you could sort of stick a pin anywhere in the body, a marker, and you could probably find a symptom that relates. In terms of emotional or psychological and cognitive symptoms, We've talked about mood disorders, anxiety disorders, OCD, also um, insomnia, so either sleep initiation insomnia, so difficulty getting to sleep, but also sleep permanence insomnia where people can't stay asleep and often wake up in the middle of the night, often for no reason at all, often because they're having a panic attack or they need the bathroom, but then finding it very difficult to rest and turn the brain off and get back to sleep again without sort of perpetually worrying and ruminating overnight early morning waking because of the same reasons to sort of coming out of a sleep cycle and then not being able to get back in things that we call sort of brain fog which is a huge umbrella term actually to describe a number of cognitive difficulties so one of the most common ones I find is word finding difficulty people who are very articulate who are you know research scientists or novelists journalists who are suddenly finding it incredibly difficult to find the right word people who have just got memory deficits, you know, they can't remember the name of the colleague that's sitting opposite them in the boardroom, which is enormously embarrassing and can have a then massive impact on things like your confidence at work. Difficulty focusing and concentrating, and obviously this plays then into particularly that group of women who already have difficulties with that in terms of ADHD. It can make it so much worse. So work becomes difficult, even leisure time becomes difficult. You might not be able to watch film from beginning to end because you can't focus or your mind is constantly scattered elsewhere being easily distracted and then leading into sort of changes in terms of motivation so loss of motivation and desire to do the things that you used to enjoy doing 
and lack of desire to have sex and a low libido, which is a really common symptom in perimenopause and menopause. And alongside that, what we often see with these hormonal changes is changes to the experience of arousal. So women no longer being able to you know, feel pleasure during intimacy, no longer able to reach climax. And of course, that's then negatively feeding back. So if you're not enjoying the experience, actually, you're not going to have the desire to do it from time to time. That can then cause the issues in terms of relationships and conflicts and all of that sort of thing. We can see headaches, so either new onset headaches or worsening headaches. Migraine frequency is something that will often increase around perimenopause. Often postmenopausally, interestingly, when hormone levels are a bit flatter, we see that migraine frequency tends to settle as well. So it's often worse when there's big fluctuations in hormones. Tinnitus, so ringing in the ears, um, dryness in the ears, dryness of the eyes, dizziness symptoms something that we call burning mouth syndrome, which is this really non-specific set of symptoms where the mouth just feels persistently sore. You might also experience sort of acid reflux type symptomology or a difficulty swallowing a sort of globus or even a dryness in the mouth. Joint pain symptoms, particularly in the shoulders, I'm finding is very common. People developing rotator cuff injuries or frozen shoulders, previously very fit and active people who are used to being able to function very normally and now kind of getting injuries more quickly or getting aches and pains that are causing them more problems. Again, you know, difficulties in the small joints of the hands, the stiffness, for example, or pain in the hands that have never been an issue before. Palpitations is another really, really common physical symptom. I was talking to somebody about this just today. Often women will come to us and they've been through the entire sort of range of cardiological investigations, they've had MRIs and CTs and echocardiograms and ECGs and blood tests, often on medicines for their palpitations. And actually they start HRT and find that their palpitations ease and they no longer need to be on those big cardiac medications. So it's really important to obviously have those investigations done to make sure there isn't anything else going on. But, you know, it's just, I think that one is one that in particular demonstrates the sort of power of the, the influence of these hormones on our body. Gastrointestinal disturbances are really common. Often people will present with bloating symptoms, as I said, reflux, um, sensitivities to food that they've never been sensitive to before, but also associated with that new onset allergy symptoms. So a lot of people who have never had hay fever and then suddenly they're developing an allergic rhinitis to pollen or grasses or dust in the house, for example. So getting a runny nose that then might make them snore. And if they're snoring, that's going to interrupt sleep. Often people will find that dairy becomes a problem or they can't tolerate gluten, so might start removing those things from the diet, which is, you know, fine from a symptom control perspective. But calcium is a really important nutrient from the diet that actually a lot of people don't get sufficient amounts of, and it's crucially important for bone health. As our estrogen levels decline, we we won't feel symptomatic of this, but our bone mineral density declines. And as we move through into menopause, we're at higher risk of developing osteoporosis, osteopenia, that might increase the risk of getting a fracture in the bones. And we can support that by doing things like weight-bearing exercises or resistance exercises to reduce the risk of what we call sarcopenia or muscle loss, which is another common physical symptom. Pelvic symptoms, so you know, period pain, as I said, bloating, heavier, lighter, shorter, longer, irregular bleeding and cycles in perimenopause. Obviously, after menopause periods would normally stop. Vaginal dryness vulval dryness, discomfort during intimacy, bladder symptomology, irritability in the bladder, having to pee more often, more urgently, leaking when you've never really leaked before, having to wake up in the night to pass urine. As I said, literally, you could 
think of any part of the body and probably come up with it with a symptom of perimenopause, menopause. And historically, I think there were like 21 defined symptoms. I think we're now on 34 defined symptoms. But what's great about, you know, the conversation being so widely talked about is that more and more people are coming to us as clinicians and saying, look, I think this is what I'm experiencing. I've got this set of symptoms. And as we have more and more people coming forward with their symptoms, we'll only learn more about the kind of symptomology that we need to be looking out for. So it's really good to be talking about it. That's a great point, actually. And people, although there's a risk of obviously over self-diagnosis, it's helpful for you if people can have crossed out almost a number of things, as you said, with your heart. You know, if you've actually eliminated that you've got a, you know, a problem with your arteries and you've had a CT scan and you've gone through all those hoops already, it's actually a much quicker condensed process that they have of, of identifying what the crux of the problem is. I forgot to mention actually, and in, in combination with palpitations, palpitations is often a manifestation of changes to the blood supply or the blood vessels. And it can often be either alongside or instead of hot flushes. So hot flushes and night sweats are a really common phenomenon and a common symptom, but not everyone will experience it. Likewise, some people find that those temperature regulation symptoms will actually be that they're cold and shivery, not hot and flustered and sweaty. And there's one other symptom that comes up actually quite a lot, and it's quite specific actually to estrogen levels being low, um, and it's called formication. Um, and it's where you have this sensation that you've got insects under the skin, and it's just like this constant itchy irritation in the skin. And it's something that can be enormously debilitating, but responds really, really quickly to estrogen therapy. This episode of Hurt to Healing is sponsored by our friends at The And Partnership. The And Partnership is a global communications business working with clients like Toyota, Mars, Coca-Cola and NatWest, as well as charities like the Princess Trust and RNIB. They believe that by bringing diverse talent together in partnership, they can transform the way that great brands are built. They call it the power of And. On the Hurt to Healing podcast, we know that having honest conversations about mental health can help us to see different points of view and to better understand ourselves. Just like the AND partnership's belief in the power of AND, we believe that by coming together to share our stories, we make ourselves and each other stronger. To find out more about the work the AND partnership creates, visit theandpartnership.com. That's T-H-E-A-N-D partnership.com. And a massive thank you to the AM Partnership for supporting my mission and showing what we can achieve when we come together. Why do some people choose to go on HRT and other people don't? Because for me, it's a no-brainer now. Why would you not take something that's just tried and tested? And, and obviously, if you've got a risk of, say, breast cancer or you've got a medical history, which makes that slightly trickier than then that's another situation altogether but if you don't I'm confused as to why some women would still opt out of having hormone replacement therapy when it just seems to be a no-brainer not to I think it's a complex question I don't think has a definite answer because I think it's something that's quite individualized and I think that um, it's important to bear that in mind everyone's lived experience is quite different for example, I see a lot of people who've had terrible symptomology during their reproductive years that they've assigned to you know, hormonal imbalances. Actually, they don't want to take hormones because they don't want to feel worse again. Likewise, if people have a history of endometriosis, for example, which is something that you know estrogen potentially can drive, they are reluctant to take something that's going to make their bleeding a lot worse. 
anybody who's had close family member or a close friend experience, you know, a breast cancer diagnosis or an endometrial or ovarian cancer diagnosis, I think naturally are a little bit more reluctant. And I think that's entirely reasonable. But I think what's important is that women are provided with the right information, sufficient information to make an informed decision about what they want. And I think up until quite recently, the information around, you know, safety and benefits of HRT has been ambiguous. And I'd say, you know, we're almost at a point now where that ambiguity is is happening again because there is so much information and there's often really conflicting advice. You know, there's a lot of people out there who've had terrible experiences at the hands of the medical profession and they are very untrusting and they might seek advice from somebody who's a, a naturopath or a lifestyle medicine doctor or somebody who's seeking to provide an alternative solution. And, you know, I think that that viewpoint is completely valid, but I think it's also important that anyone making a decision about how they wish to manage their perimenopause or menopause needs to arm themselves with as much evidence-based information as possible so that they can make that decision specifically to them. And unfortunately, it's quite difficult in the context of NHS care because consultations can notoriously be very short, very difficult to get hold of, particularly if you're a busy midlife woman who's been stretched in all different directions, sitting on the phone for an hour to try and make an appointment can be a challenge. But actually then when you get to your doctor, actually if they're short on time or you're flustered and you've got cognitive difficulties, it might be difficult to get from that consultation an adequate understanding. And I think we still have to be aware that there's lots of clinicians who hold very old fashioned views. And for a woman who's not really sure about what they want to do, if they meet a clinician who says, oh, no, you shouldn't have HRT, it's not safe, that's going to reinforce that negative thought and that negative belief. And it's going to take us a long time, I think, to unpick a lot of that and to kind of reverse the impact of the Million Women Study, the WHO Million Women Study that was published over 20 years ago. And it was that study that sort of changed HRT prescribing and, and use almost overnight because the study claimed that HRT caused breast cancer and increased heart disease. Actually, what we now know is that HRT doesn't increase the risk of heart disease when it's prescribed appropriately. And the risk of breast cancer was very, very much overstated in that previous study. And also that study was looking at a much older group of women um, using older forms of synthetic HRT, which is very different from the situation that we're currently looking at. But as I said, like if your lived experience is, is one where you've had someone close to you suffer or if you've got anxiety already and you just the worry that you experience from being on HRT is greater than the benefits you're going to get from it then I can kind of see why people might have an alternative viewpoint on that and as you say I think it's still a, an underexplored topic which yes. has got a long way to go and, and we still don't have certainty and this is the thing we still don't have certainty around breast cancer risk for example we know that um, there is an increased risk of endometrial cancer um, in, in certain groups of women. And, you know, it's small, but there is, you know, estrogen sensitive ovarian cancers that can be much worse when you add um, HRT into the mix. So it's not completely risk free, although the risks are very, very, very small for the vast majority of women in comparison to the enormous advantages and benefits that you can see both from a symptom relief perspective, but also preventing the symptoms that somebody is currently experiencing from getting worse and more deep-seated and deep-grained over time and becoming you know irreversible often but we also know that HRT is beneficial for our cardiovascular health it helps us to reduce the rates and risks of cardiovascular disease and bearing in mind that 
Cardiovascular disease, a heart attack, strokes, vascular dementia are amongst the most common causes of death for women. If we can be using HRT in our you know, midlife years and beyond in a safe way to help safeguard our cardiovascular health, that's an enormous benefit that you may never physically feel. <laughs> but it's one that really does need to be borne in mind. Likewise, the benefits to bone health and the reduced fragility factor risk, um, which is why it's so important to treat young women with premature ovarian insufficiency or early menopause particularly in the context of things like eating disorders, um, who will be at an increased risk of osteoporosis because of, you know, the biological experience that they've had previously. Yeah, so it's it's complicated. <laughs> it's a very complicated topic. And you alluded to the perimenopause. So what defines the perimenopause and how does one know that you're entering into the perimenopausal stage? I think that's the most difficult part is that it's very difficult to define perimenopause. Ultimately, it is the period of time in the run-up to the point of menopause. And actually, a lot of women won't know when they pit menopause if they're taking something like the progesterone-only pill or have a myrena coil inside you that means they're not having periods. Or, you know, if they have an endometrial ablation, they might not know when their periods have actually stopped. But technically, your perimenopause is the ill-defined period of time in the run-up to the menopause characterised by perpetually decreasing but fluctuating levels of um, your natural sex hormone levels, which is why in many ways it can be a much more difficult storm to endure, particularly, like I've said, for, for women who have ADHD, for example, women who suffer with migraine symptoms, because this big fluctuation can cause instability and that can be far-reaching and have a huge uh, set of consequences. Average age of menopause is thought to be between about 48 and 52. I think as we learn more and more about menopause, we're going to see actually current trends would suggest that there's more and more women experiencing menopause earlier than 48. And perimenopause can last between five or even up to 15 years before the point of menopause, depending on you know an individual's pre-existing ovarian health and ovarian follicular reserve. So when you think about that, actually, if you're somebody who's likely to experience their menopause at 48 or 45, then you need to be thinking about whether you're perimenopausal from your 30s, really. I think an awareness of what symptoms to look out for is probably one of the biggest things to help women because if they're noticing symptoms but they're aware that there might be something underlying them, they're then in an informed position to sort of join the dots <laughs> um, and then say, well, is this perimenopause? Is this something that I can do something about? What lifestyle changes can I make and what medical interventions have I got available to me it's something that is very difficult to define but I would say if you think you might be going through it or experiencing perimenopause trust your instincts actually and you know maybe keep a diary of symptoms write them all down because that can give you a really useful objective um, piece of evidence as it were as to what how difficult you know your life has become or what you're experiencing but also whether there's a cyclical nature to those symptoms so if they're all the time or whether they're just happening in and around your period and if that's the case you know are they getting worse over time and actually is that period of your month premenstrual week for example is that getting longer and longer and longer and are you then having three weeks of premenstrual symptoms and one good week a month in which case i would suggest actually it's possible that you've then hit you know perimenopause rather than just this this being sort of premenstrual syndrome alone and what lifestyle changes do you advise your patients to make if they are entering into that perimenopausal phase? What can ease the symptoms somewhat? So as I suggested or alluded to earlier, I think we often overlook the benefits of proactively managing our mental health. 
it's something that I wish culturally we accepted more and encouraged more because our lives are so stressful now. I'm not saying that life wasn't stressful before, but our lives are stressful in an, in an unprecedented way. And we are conditioned to just cope with everything that we're dealing with. And even if your experience is less difficult than the person standing next to you, it doesn't mean that your experience should be minimized. And I think talking therapy and proactive stress management, so putting in boundaries, learning when to say no, being aware of your limitations, being aware of kind of those signs that you might be emotionally burning out so that you can, you know, make sure that you protect your energy. I think all of that sort of thing is really important if you've had trauma, if you've gone through hardship or difficulty, having the opportunity to talk that through with a professional to find coping strategies that will help to keep your stress hormone levels a little bit more evenly balanced. As I said earlier, all our hormone systems interact. If we're firing off our stress hormones, our cortisol and adrenaline on a perpetual basis, over time, that has an impact on your sex hormones. You know, all those stress hormones will um, cause your pituitary and your brain to send out less of the FSH, which is the hormone that tells your ovaries to ovulate. Because in a really primitive way, you know, when we were cave people running from danger, it wasn't a sensible thing to be either pregnant, breastfeeding or carrying a small child at times of distress. So when our stress hormones, our fight flight hormones are being triggered perpetually, it has a direct impact on our sex hormone levels. So managing the stress, finding ways of, you know, reducing those stress hormone levels of de-stressing your nervous system ultimately in whichever way a person finds suitable you know it's very easy for me to say everyone should go and have some psychotherapy but actually it's not practical sometimes so it's just finding ways and often it's self-care it's saying to people and giving people permission to actually invest in themselves and that it's not selfish I'll often say to my patients how would you treat a friend if they came to you telling you that they were experiencing this and they will say, oh, I would tell them to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm saying to them, well, you need to start talking to yourself like you would talk to your best friend because that's who you need to be to yourself right now. And I think, again, we've got conditioned to be quite hard on ourselves sometimes, particularly as women. So that's a big element of it. I think the other thing that's really important is to make sure, as I said earlier, that we are nutritionally supporting ourselves and our bodies and making sure that we're eating plenty of protein, that we've got sufficient energy in our diets, and that we're not potentially at risk of REDS, relatively en relative energy deficiency in sport. As you said earlier, sort of athletes and things are more at risk of this, but actually anyone who exercises, if you're over-exercising and undernourishing, you're at risk of REDS, and that can cause very similar symptoms to perimenopause. It can perpetuate menopause and perimenopausal problems. So making sure you're getting the balance of energy expenditure and nutritional input right can be really, really tricky, particularly in the context of weight gain, which is obviously a really sort of common symptom at this phase. Making sure you've got some omega oils, some oily fish in the diet if you're not plant-based and making sure that you're supplementing if you are plant-based. Again, if you're plant-based, making sure that you've got good B12 sources, but also across the board, making sure that you've got vitamin D as a supplement, particularly over the winter months, but also during the summer months, because none of us really get enough vitamin D from sunlight. And when we're low on that, it's a cofactor in a lot of hormonal functions. So it's really important to make sure that we've got sufficient amounts of vitamin D on board. Reducing sugar intake, not taking it out completely, because let's be really honest, sometimes it's just really good for the soul to have a cup of tea and a big piece of cake. And I wouldn't want anyone to not have those pleasures, because it's really important that we do. But just thinking about, you know, your relationship with those sweet foods, is it something that you're reaching to for comfort? What else can you do to comfort yourself? 
Likewise with alcohol, I think it's been a really common, particularly coming out of the back of the pandemic, saw so many people, both perimenopausal and menopausal women, but also male patients who were drinking way in excess of what the recommended upper limit is, which is 14 units a week for both men and women. Alcohol, yes, it makes us feel nice and relaxed and it can be a you know, a great thing to help you ease the end of your day, but actually it's really working against you in terms of your hormone health. So exploring with people what their relationship with alcohol is, if it's something that they're using to soothe or treat, then I think we need to discuss that in a little bit more detail, often challenging people to think about abstaining for a period of time and seeing how much better they might feel without alcohol in their system. But again, not putting too much pressure on to be abstinent if actually the person's cultural situation means that actually it's a big part of their enjoyment of life. And then movement. So be intuitive about movement, but get moving. Do something. You know, don't set your sights too high. Don't sort of say, right, well, I'm going to start hitting the gym and lifting weights five times a week if actually you've not really had the energy, but, you know, availability to do that. Go for a walk on a daily basis. What I think one of the most helpful things to do is to wake up in the morning, open the curtains and see daylight. If you can do that, you start a number of processes hormonally going in the body. When the eyes get that daylight, you get melatonin production it starts the day well even better if you can get that daylight exposure whilst going out for a walk and fresh air in nature if we can experience that it's very good to down regulate the central nervous system and to start our day off feeling nice and calm but in a busy overstretched life that can be a very difficult thing to access and i think start low you know go for a walk for five minutes a day you know everyone's got time to do that and slowly over time people can build that up i think things like pilates and yoga are really important for midlife women as is resistance and, and weight-based exercises if that's something that's available to you in terms of managing weight but also emotions and hormonal balance doing things that are going to turn non-lean into lean muscle mass is really important because that's going to help to keep your metabolic rate active and help you feeling good and energized and sort of motivated and, and, and feeling more confident in your body i think a lot of people think of yoga and pilates as being you know, a bit easy and they perhaps sort of shy away from that because they want to get a good sweat. But actually they are really useful forms of exercise because they are tuning into your breath, connecting your mind and your body, whilst also, you know, strengthening your muscles, helping you with skeletal stability, which is really important if, you know, joints and muscles aren't working terribly well. And then sleep, prioritizing sleep, because I'm so guilty of doing this myself. And, you know, this weekend, prime example, just have been really anxious and haven't been sleeping well. And then everything just goes to pot. Whereas if you prioritize sleep and you say actually nothing else is as important as me going to sleep and having a good night's sleep, then as time passes, if you continue to get consistently good sleep, things will start to improve. There's lots of really great resources out there for how to improve sleep. And I'm sure that it's been covered um, in, in lots of detail here before, but I would say if you can focus on doing one thing, if your sleep is poor, really try and prioritise that first and foremost. And I just quickly like to touch on, because it's, again, something that I'm particularly interested in. I mean, why do girls particularly who have suffered with anorexia and, and restrictive eating disorders, they often have early onset menopause and some women do as well who haven't suffered with eating disorders. And first of all, why is this? And second of all, what can you do to try and prolong this and how can you manage that? My first answer to that question is so premature ovarian insufficiency is the sort of official term that we use now for early menopause. Um, and essentially that is menopause before the age of 40. And it's really common. So uh, I think it's one in 100 women between 30 and 40 will experience a premature menopause. 
and one in a thousand women under the age of 30. So it is a really common thing, much more common than I think we realise. Um, and it's something that I think we need to empower women to talk about more openly. POI, the most common cause, is an autoimmune disease that we just sometimes never really understand. There are genetic things that can increase your risk of developing POI, so certain genetic disorders, for example. And, you know, from a family history perspective, we are born with a finite number of ovarian follicles. So when we are born, we already have our kind of reproductive destiny predetermined. And that was determined when we were, you know, three months old in our mother's wombs. And so there are paternal genetic and maternal genetic factors that actually influence our reproductive lives that we are in very little control over. And then, of course, when you when you're the age that you start your periods and then the exposure, biological exposure that you have had through your reproductive years influences how reactive certain parts of your body are to hormones or how well your pituitary and your ovaries are at producing all the important hormones that we need to maintain normal function. And in athletes, for example, I mentioned REDS earlier, or in women who have suffered with amenorrhea or a stopping of their periods because of disordered eating or disordered exercising, that's essentially where you've kind of, for want of a better term, sort of stressed the sex hormone reproductive hormone axis. And so if that happens, you might find that then the parts of the brain that produce the FSH and indeed the ovaries that are responsible for producing the estrogen are less reactive and less responsive in some way. And so we don't really understand why, but it's likely to be a combination of kind of genetic factors and what we call epigenetic factors. So the influence our environment has on our you know, predetermined genetic experience. And of course, exercising and eating disorders can have a profound effect on things like our, uh, the epigenetic uh, sort of expression of certain elements of function. And I'm curious as to what, up until what age do you think can you reverse that? Say you've, epigenetics have played a huge role in the amenorrhea and the stopping of periods. At what point do you think you stop being able to repair the damage as it were? I, do you know, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I don't know whether anybody does really, but when you consider that naturally we're going to start having a kind of slight decline in the function of our ovaries and our female reproductive hormone axis from about our mid-30s, it's likely that if you haven't managed to get things back on track by the time you've hit your mid-30s, you might never get back to optimal again. You might get to a point where things are better, but then naturally things are going to start declining again over time and you might find actually that the decline is more accelerated in sensitized individuals. But yeah, I don't think anyone has really defined that there is a specific age at which you need to get things back on track in order to stop things from being a problem. But I think what's important is that for this group of people who are experiencing this under the age of 40, HRT is really important and enormously beneficial. And, you know, is a discussion I think is really important that women have with their healthcare providers. It's something that often general practitioners don't feel super comfortable with because sometimes you need to have special tests to sort of understand why something has happened why a premature ovarian insufficiency has happened um, and it can often be handled a little bit more sensitively by you know, specialist menopause clinics. Absolutely and I think often when you go to a GP their first tool is really to reach for the pill which I think over time we've learned isn't it's just a plaster it's not really a cure yeah. at all. But just to speak I mean the combined pill contains more estrogen than most HRT so for younger women who are likely to need more estrogen to help them with their symptoms Actually, it can be a really viable option because 
it provides lots of estrogen and there are now options available that contain what we call body identical estrogens things like clara and aloine for example um, are newer generation contraceptive pills that contain estrogen but they all contain a synthetic progesterone which is often what we are concerned about in terms of the breast cancer risk but the other thing is even if you have a diagnosis of poi premature ovarian insufficiency or early menopause there's still a five to nine percent risk of spontaneous ovulation and pregnancy so actually it's really important to have adequate contraceptive cover for women who have a premature ovarian insufficiency diagnosis and the contraceptive pill can act as that contraception as well as providing the necessary estrogen which can help with their bone health and cardiovascular health. Gosh, I could go on and talk to you for hours. I really could. So we might have to do a, another episode part in a two. few months' time. Uh, exactly, part two. But um, I know you've got to go and I'm so grateful for your time. It's been just absolutely fascinating and I can't wait to chat further. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on Pandora. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing 101. Just a reminder that if you're struggling or in need of someone to talk to, please remember to text SHOUT to 85258.